The World Tomorrow. Herbert W. Armstrong brings you the plain truth about today's world news and the prophecies of the world tomorrow. Now, what about you? How do you come to believe what you believe? People have their ideas, their conceptions, and they'll stand up and fight for it. They bristle up if anyone disagrees with them. But how do they come to believe that? How do they know that what they believe is true? You ever stop to think how you came to believe what you believe? How did it get into your mind? You've got absolute beliefs. You've got convictions, and you're sure of it. But someone else is just as sure of the opposite, of something entirely different. Now, how did you come to be so sure? And are you so sure after all, or do you just think you are? Well, let me answer that question. Most people believe what they've been brought up to believe, especially in religion. They believe the religion that those people around them believe and what they were taught to believe and what their neighbors and, and everybody they know believes, what their peers believe, and those around them. Now, there's another reason why people believe what they do and about other things than religion. They believe what they have repeatedly read or what they have repeatedly heard until they just accept it. As I say, <laughs> I knew about that slogan, truth in advertising, uh, which really is not the truth. And, uh, but advertising men know that people believe what they hear or see or read repeatedly. Now, in advertising, we have to consider uh, broadly two different categories of the things that uh, we advertise that are uh, for sale. Of course, there are services and there's merchandise. But your problem and your merchandising problem is either one of education or it's one of just uh, repeating a name until they'll buy that name. For instance, in cigarettes, most cigarette uh, companies will advertise their particular brand. Now, a lot of them are using advertising to try to show you that you ought to smoke because uh, the government makes them print something that cigarette smoking is dangerous. So now they're trying to counter that so they can stay in business. And they're going to tell you whatever they think you can get you to believe. And they know that if they repeat it often enough, you're going to believe it. You believe what you read. You see, we learn that in our educational system. People start in school, they learn to read beginning the first grade in school at age six. They begin to get a little arithmetic and things like that at about age seven in the second grade. Pretty soon they're, they're able to read, and, and so education from that time on comes largely from books, from textbooks. And you're expected to believe exactly what that textbook says. And if you don't, you're going to maybe be flunked or you get a, a wrong mark on that particular question. Makes me think of a grandson of mine when he was, uh, I don't know where, whether it was the fourth, fifth, sixth grade along in there. And anyway, he was asked uh, in class one time, uh, uh, Larry, the teacher said, uh, uh, who discovered America? And Larry said, the Indians. Larry, she said, you know better than that. No, ma'am, I don't. 
She said, why, you know that Columbus discovered America. Well, but ma'am, weren't the Indians already here to welcome that Columbus when he got here? And the teacher flunked him. Now, that's the way our schools operate. You don't realize it. We're taught in our educational system, it's a system of memory training. You believe what the book says. You believe what's in print. Advertising men know that. I knew that. And I knew how to double a, a client's business for him in advertising. And I did it repeatedly. Um, how long will we have this kind of thing with us? I can understand why Christ said some of the things he did. Well, most people believe then what they're raised up to believe, or they believe what they have read, what they have heard. And again, most people believe what they want to believe. They believe what their peer group believes. Kids, for instance, believe what other kids their own age believe, that they're, uh, they, they're associated or play around with. Much more than they believe what the parents say. And you parents ought to realize that. To your child, even up into the teenagers, the other kids their own age have a lot more authority than you do. Unless you're very careful. Now, maybe you're going to be clever enough to convince them that you know more than the other kids do, and I hope you succeed in that. But otherwise, uh, just be careful. Now, there's another thing. A lot of people believe what they want to believe, even though they might know it's not the truth. They'll believe it anyway. And uh, uh, a lot of people believe, uh, refuse to believe, what they don't want to believe. And even if you prove it to them, they won't accept it. And there's an old saying that uh, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And he certainly is. A man convinced against his will. When there's a political election, those that are running for office, they're going to give you what you want. They, they, they want you to know that they're working for you. And they're concerned about you. Yeah, they say, we, I care about you. Of course, that's a, that's a good argument to talk about, if you believe it. They pose as the benefactors of the people, and they're supposed to give us all of the good things. But the main thing that government gives us is high taxes and uh, some more things. I guess we forget that on... Uh, uh, welfare and all that sort of thing, that all of the money that the government pays out, they have to take from the taxpayers in the first place. You are bothered not only with taxes, you're more worried about something else right now, and that's inflation. I can tell you the reason for inflation, but the government is not going to tell you. The politicians are not going to tell you. The educators or the scientists are not going to tell you. Now that I've started, I might as well tell you. I don't know that anybody will believe it. But this is the truth, and you can't refute it. Back in the year of 1914, early January, 1914. Now that's before most of you were born. But I was then a correspondent of a national magazine in its editorial department. I was over traveling in eastward New York, 
I had reached, I believe it was Utica, New York. I received a telegram from my publishers of the largest magazine of his type in the United States, asking me to uh, catch the next train. We didn't have airplanes, you know, at that time, not yet. But to uh, catch the next train back to Detroit and to interview Henry Ford, that he had just instituted a sensational new $5 a day wage plan. And it, 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 it was uh, gigantic news. And they wanted a personal story, and they wanted their own correspondent to cover it and to receive it. So I went to Detroit. I saw Henry Ford. That was in 1914. Of course, he's not here any longer, but uh, I don't know whether Edsel still is or not, to tell you the truth. But at that time, I found that Mr. Ford didn't know much about his $5 a day wage plan which uh, was a real front-page sensation in all the newspapers of the United States at the time. You see, the average union wage scale in the automobile industry was $3.75 a day. Now you can see how prices have gone up since then. What you get per day today is buying very much more than their $3.75 bought then. I can remember where my father, when I was a boy, had been taken by a man who perhaps was a little better off financially than my father was and took him to the leading hotel in our city and bought him a 50-cent lunch. And that was quite an event. Well, how much of a lunch can you get today for 50 cents? You see what's happened to money. That's, uh, money is escalating like a lot of other things. Well, anyway, I found that Henry Ford himself didn't know too much about it. And uh, that uh, uh, a man who was the head of his sociological department, his name was John R. Lee, was the man who had thought out and uh, invented the idea, had presented it to Mr. Ford and others on the board of directors, and uh, they had approved it, and Mr. Ford had approved it. So they told Mr. Lee to go ahead and to administer it. So I went to John R. Lee. I said, Mr. Lee, I've been sent here to get a story on this sensational thing, that you are now paying the highest wages in the automobile industry. He says, beg pardon, Mr. Armstrong. Wrong. We're paying the lowest. What? Why, well, I said, uh, isn't the union scale $3.75 a day for a 10-hour day? Yes, yes, indeed, he said. Well, haven't you now raised it to $5 a day for only uh, a 9-hour day? Well, that's very true, Mr. Armstrong. Well, now, isn't that more? No. He said it isn't. He said, we don't figure in proportion to just how much money we pay. We figure what we get for what we pay. Now, we have uh, enough uh, uh, volume of business and uh, uh, a, la a large enough mar uh, market that uh, we are manufacturing so many more automobiles than any of the others, and we have now been able to institute the conveyor belt uh, uh, machine production. The car starts at one end, and as it goes along, Every man has to do his part before it gets past him. 
We set the pace of how fast and how hard our men work. And we get twice the work out of every man for uh, our $5 that they do for $3.75. And, and even in, in, in the nine hours, and they do at $3.75 at 10 hours. You figure who, who is, is getting the most for the smallest amount. We are. Now, that started the ball rolling. It wasn't very long until others in the automobile industry had mass machine production because the United States offered a mass market. No other nation on earth had a mass market like that at that time. No nation in Europe. They weren't as large or as populous as we were. We were then around 200 million, quite a little over that now, but we were very close to it then. Uh, Russia may have had more people than we, but they, uh, they, uh, they didn't, uh, uh, they were not uh, a market because they, uh, uh, let's say per capita income over there was insignificant compared to the United States. So they didn't offer them any market, nor China, nor other nations. Japan is about half as large as the United States, but they didn't have that kind of a market then. Now pretty soon, all other companies in the various industries in the United States were going to mass machine production. Whether it was typewriters, adding machines, refrigerators, or whatever they manufactured. Now a machine can produce so much more than a man by hand that uh, uh, by machines you produce, I, I would say more than ten times what you can do uh, by just a human hand. Machine production speeds it up. Well, I don't doubt for a minute that capital and management would have taken all the profit because it's human, and uh, uh, they are human. But uh, labor union uh, uh, leaders began to see a big chance for them. Now, this world, as I've said time after time, is based on the philosophy of get. I love me. I'm wild about myself. I, uh, you remember the song back in 1924. Oh, I love me. I put my arms around myself and give myself a squeeze. I love me, but I don't care anything about you. Now, that's why uh, uh, a common uh, advertising slogan today is that uh, we care about you. Well, uh, you better check up and find out if that's true. It's a good advertising slogan. Well, Labor unions started a series of strikes, and the labor union movement got going. Of course, there was much violence. And uh, maybe you remember things like the bombing of the Los Angeles Times, the Heron Massacre in Illinois, and some of the outrageous things that were going on. But labor got their share out of this increased profits that were coming. Now the machine was producing things for us. And we didn't pay the machine, you see. You, you just pay to get it, and then it's yours. It's your slave, but you don't have to pay it wages. And uh, the result is, it was just a matter of time until labor in the United States was on a scale that was uh, two, three, four times that of other nations. Now, I remember when we were starting the college over in England in the year of 1960. 
And I spent quite a little time over there in that year, 1960, and we had to have work done. And I found that men would come to do a job for you, and actually they didn't come to work. They came to coffee and took a work break once in a while. Uh, they just sort of reversed the thing. Now, I'm not kidding. They really did. And, uh, but the average wage in England then, in 1960, I found to be one-third of the average wage in the United States. Now, Britain had already come to mass machine production, however, and the nations in Europe through the common market, and England finally worked her way into that, have created a mass market so that they began to have a mass market and who get into mass machine production, assembly line, uh, conveyor belt type uh, uh, of uh, manufacturing, where the machine was doing the work, but they still had low-cost labor. Now, the labor unions weren't exactly asleep over there, but they weren't making the progress that they had made in the United States. And consequently, the labor, uh, uh, it was a, a, a low-cost labor market. In other words, the, uh, the wage average was so much lower, about one-third of the United States. Now, it was about the same in France, it was even lower than that at that time in Germany, but it speeded up in Germany because they began coming back fast. And remember that 1960 was not too far out of World War II, and Germany was pretty well down at the end of World War II, but they came back faster than any of the other nations. Well, uh, Japan began to come up very, very, very rapidly. But uh, the last time that I saw uh, the former uh, Prime Minister uh, Sato of Japan, who had become a good friend of mine. I had visited him a good many times, and after he was out of office, uh, uh, once in a downtown office and once, uh, twice out in his home, in his residence. And uh, he said to me, you know, it was, must have been about five, four or five years ago now, he said, well, he said, thanks to the United States, Japan, has uh, come forward with remarkable success industrially and economically, but he said, unfortunately, all this uh, prosperity that has come to Japan has not yet filtered down to our uh, laboring element and to the masses of the people, they're not getting so much yet. Now, I know it has been filtering down since that time, very, very rapidly, and uh, Prime Minister Sato, by the way, just shortly before he died, uh, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, which I know he was very happy to have. Well, now, now what has happened? Japan came to a mass market because Japan is exporting things to the United States, and the reason Japan has been able to uh, have such great prosperity is because they have not had to maintain uh, a military establishment. They have no army or navy anymore. They are relying on the United States to protect them, and we're, our taxpayers are paying for the great military installation that is protecting all of Europe against Russia and protecting Japan against uh, China or anyone else. And we don't realize it. Sometimes I think that instead of Uncle Sam, we should be called Uncle Sap. Well, we're, we're, we're stupid. We really are. 
we just don't see those things. And now what are we doing? American industry has mass machine production, that's true. But with still the, the biggest cost is labor, even with a machine. And we have high price labor. Europe and Japan, Japan was on, uh, their, their, their labor was only one fourth that of the United States in 1960. I don't know what it is now. Maybe it's up to one half because I know it's been uh, scaling up, but uh, I don't know just to what extent. But uh, they still are a long ways from having our standard of uh, uh, income or wage for, uh, for labor. And so here we are trying to produce with high cost labor and meet the competition of other nations that have mass machine production with low cost labor. That is why we have inflation. Now gradually, as I say, in England, the average worker today is getting perhaps uh, 55, 60 percent of the wage scale of the average American. And the result is, uh, what happens? Our prices go up so your dollar doesn't buy as much as it did. We've got to get the wage scale down, even with other nations, one way or the other. It isn't because anyone wants to, it's just a matter of supply and demand and there's no way around it. And uh, anyone that you elect as president or as your congressman or anything else in the government, there's nothing he can do about it. It's just a, a fact of the way of things. We're competing with low-cost labor. And we can't have the kind of thing we have and the luxuries we have in the United States and the high living standard while other nations have a low living standard. We nations are interdependent today, one upon another. And we have exchange. And uh, we have a medium of exchange. The, the, our medium is the dollar. In Japan, it's the yen. In Germany, it's the mark. It's the pound in England. And so it goes. And the uh, value of the dollar is going down. The value of the yen and the mark and the pound and the franc is going up. And that's the way they're gradually doing this thing. If I go to Japan now, my hotel room, the food that I eat, anything I buy is going to cost me twice what it did three years ago. Simply because my American dollar will only buy about one half as many yen as it did then. And of course I have to transfer dollars into yen and pay in yen over there. Now that's what we're up against. And I want to tell you, your Bible says that we are in for a terrible time. Right now, the government officials, our economic brains, so to speak, at least they think they are, uh, are wrestling around with the question, are we headed for a recession? Or are we headed for a depression, a real depression, or not? No one seems to think that things are going to get better now in the next year. But many think that there will be at least a recession. Let us hope it won't be worse than the last two or three, which I think we didn't feel too much. But I can tell you that a great one is coming, because this book right here says so. And what it says is going to happen, if it says it'll happen.
And uh, anyway, that uh, uh, it's, it's through the, the value of the dollar and the exchange of goods and one thing and another, it's forcing the prices up in the United States. Now, wages, uh, labor unions go into a strike. All they do is force the price up. They have a long strike. They lose a lot of money. They're not going to make it up. And the increased money that they got from the strike does not make it up. And in the meantime, up goes the price. Because the manufacturer has to raise his price or else go out of business, one or the other. Because his costs go up and he has to get it and pass that on to the consumer. And if he passes it on maybe to the jobber or, or the wholesale market and they pass it on to the retailer and the retailer passes it on to you. Here we are in a hodgepodge of confusion and we're in uh, financial troubles and we do have high taxes and we do have inflation and it is not going to stop until we get an even balance with other nations. And take it from me and uh, incidentally you'll find that I know what I'm talking about. For more information please visit our website at www.coglittleflock.com.